Hello, and welcome to the Southern Gulf Islands Heritage Recordings. My name is Chris Wakalik, and I'm proud to present Volume 1 in this series with Harry Brackett. The purpose of these recordings is to provide historical and personal recordings of longtime Southern Gulf Islands residents, so their stories may be preserved for future generations to hear. This recording took place over two separate recording sessions in June of 2019 at Harry's home near Port Browning on North Pender Island. The voice of the interviewer, myself, has been extracted from this, and the audio has been edited to allow for maximum clarity and continuity in the storytelling. This project has been made possible by funding from Ptarmigan Arts. Thank you to Ptarmigan Arts for helping to support this project. And now I present to you Volume 1 of the Southern Gulf Islands Heritage Recordings. My name is George Henry Brackett, and I was born on October 11th, 1929 at Ganges on Salt Spring Island. And I moved to Pender when I was seven days old. My parents and my grandparents lived here. The, the Brackett, uh, part of the family is, Grandpa was Alex Brackett. Grandma was Margaret Brackett. He was a, um, a stonemason, and he worked in Victoria when they had to move here because their house got burnt out in Newest Minister, and they moved here in the 1890s and built their home on in Browning Harbor. And as I say, they had, they had their family here. Dad was four years old when he came, and he, he lived here until he was 90, and then we put him in a home, and uh, that's the bracket in the barman's. My mother was a barman, and she moved here when, I think she was 16, in 1914, and then her and Dad got married in, uh, two years later, yeah, 1918 they were married, or 17, I guess, because my sister was born in... in uh, they had seven more kids altogether. There was between the oldest and the youngest, I think was 12 or 13 years. And um, they've all passed away now except myself. So anyways, we're doing this to let people know what happened on the island. wasn't anything exciting because there was just nothing here really to get you excited. When we were kids, we had a good time. We... Uh, had to make our own fun. Well, we had to work too. We had a big, big vegetable garden. We had to um, weed the garden and and water the garden. We had troughs. We made troughs out of cedar poles, hauled them out. We had three acres of garden, and we watered the, all this garden with these troughs. We had a, a a well, or not a well, but a spring, which ran year round with uh, lots of water. So yeah, and that was a, a plus for this island here because there's not that much water, well water, deep well water. So anyways, we had the spring and it was a really plus thing to have. My grandpa and grandma had 160 acres. Well, I guess it was part of Browning Harbor. And dad had 40 acres of that and it was part of that. And some of the acres went right to the water. So we were kilometer away from the water, I guess. Anyways, this spring, we had lots of water. But we didn't have any indoor plumbing. We had to go out to the pit toilet. But we didn't have any sink. So uh, a brother, he went to Salt Spring, and he worked for my uncle in plumbing. So when he came home, he put in a sink in, in a grease trap and a rock pit. So we had at least a sink. We could pour water down and get rid of the water. Dad had built this log cabin, or it was actually a house because there was three bedrooms and kitchen and a living room. And he built this whole thing for $300. And we had hardwood floors. At least the living room had hardwood floors and quite a few windows. And he made his own doors. Yeah, that was uh, in 1929. And this house is, is still standing, still going. There was five of us uh, slept in one bedroom. The two girls, they had their own bedroom, and mum and dad had their bedroom. And my brother, oldest brother, he built a cabin, and he lived in the cabin. 
or slept in the cabin. I don't say lived there, no. We were quite comfortable, and it was quite a ways from the road. We had, uh, I guess it was 400 yards or so from the main road, so we didn't have car or anything else until brother came back from Salt Spring, and he he had a, a no bread wagon, Jennyville, so I to call it, and uh, we had that car, but we had to leave it up by the road, which was quite a walk to get there. No, nobody stole it, anyways. But there wasn't enough people here to uh, worry about stealing a, a vehicle. So yeah, so anyways, and <laughs> once uh, Dad drove it. it he didn't even have a license. He had a license. He had a, a, a bread wagon in, in Victoria that used to deliver bread. That was when he was a teenager. He got a, he had a license then, but he didn't have a license during the war when he was driving this old van. Anyways, we were going down this hill by the, the new to you, which was actually the school at that time, and the front wheel came off, and it went down the road ahead of us. So Dad had to slow right down, and finally the front, one side of the front car went down onto the road, eh? And, but he got it stopped in time before it wrecked the, uh, the car anyway. It didn't, didn't do any damage to the car. So we had to, uh, jack it up and put this wheel back on and find the nuts. And we, I think we found only three of them. And then, then we continued on our way down to Hope Bay. Hope Bay had the store. General store, and it's where the uh, CPR came in. It was called the Princess Mary, the CPR Princess Mary. And I guess they come in Saturdays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, I think it was. And yeah, we always used to go to the store. In the summertime, they'd bring in ice cream. I don't know, a vat of ice cream or whatever it was they had. A couple of gallons, I guess, or three gallons or something. By the time the Princess Mary left, all the ice cream was gone already. Because everybody was standing there waiting for their ice cream cone, which was five cents a cone. We enjoyed the ice cream. And I don't know, I guess we just went to meet the boat because that was the thing to do. Because they met a lot of people and talked to people. And, and I think there was maybe three or four cars on the island at that time, which was always there. Roy Adams, he had a delivery truck is a box and that so we always tried to get up to the road before he got by so we he would give us a ride to the store otherwise it was a couple of miles to walk anyways that, yeah, that was something to do we had a big garden we had about three acres of, of garden it was on a sort of a slope and as i was saying before we used to water through these these troughs and that once the garden planted and the weeds started to come up, we had to, uh, every night after school, we had to weed garden. We planted all kinds of vegetables, corn, be beans, peas, squash, tomatoes, all kinds of root vegetables. And uh, we canned uh, lots of them, like 100 quarts of beans and 100 quarts of peas and 100 quarts of corn. We had lots of fruit. We had strawberries and raspberries and loganberries and some currants. Strawberries, uh, we used to sell strawberries to, to the store. And we used to sell them in, well, I think they still have the same kind of boxes that we had then, but 12 boxes to a, a crate. When we were doing this, that was during school. So we had to carry these uh, dozen boxes of strawberries to, down to the store, which was another half a mile down from the school. We had to leave early before school so we'd get these strawberries down there and back to school in time. We had two cases of them, and me and her brother each had one, so we had to take it easy that we didn't wreck these boxes of strawberries. <laughs> Clothes we had to we had to get them through the mail from uh, Eaton store. I presume it was in Vancouver. We get clothes in the fall and clothes in the uh, spring. We get a pair of boots, 
I know boots in the fall and runners in the spring. And if the runners wore out before the, we got our boots, well, then we went barefoot. We didn't get any new runners. When we were kids, we didn't have any doctors or dentists. We had a couple of retired nurses, which helped a lot. There was a doctor on Main Island, and a doctor, well, on Salt Spring, and, and other than that, it was Besthaven and North Saanich. So if you got if you got hurt, you had to go by launch. Our school that we went to was where the new to you is now. Well, of course, we had to walk because there wasn't any other way of transportation. And, uh, yeah, there was uh, two rooms in the school, uh, one up from 1 to grade 8 and from 8 to, to 10. One through 10 was on the roadside, and the other one was on the bush side. I, I don't know how many kids were going to school when I first went, but I think maybe say around about 30. Then during the war, they just about closed the school down because there was only 17 of us going to school then. Yeah, I think every year we had a different teacher. For grade 8, I had Mrs. Grimmer, and I think she must have taught for another 15 years after that because they only had one room. It was not enough people to have two rooms going. And uh, in the wintertime, we had to get wood for the stoves. We had a stove in each room. And uh, Victor Menzies was a janitor, and he used to come and light it and bring in the wood. They had wood in the basement, and he'd bring in the, in the wood for upstairs so we could be putting it in the stove when it got down. That was the heat we had for it anyway. And where the library is, there was a big cedar tree, and, and the branches were pretty low down, so uh, all us kids used to climb this cedar tree and uh, slide down the branches, and that was one thing we had fun with. And they also had bars and swings and rings, and that they were pretty close right by the tree, so everybody at recess and lunch hour went through a stage of playing in these trees. And then we'd play baseball. We we had one baseball for the year, softball, I should say, which got wore out within a month or so. So everybody brought string, and we had to tie it all up together. And, uh, and that had last a day, and then we'd have to tie it up again. But pretty soon, the whole thing was all string. When this didn't go anymore, we couldn't play baseball. So. And then we made a tennis court, and uh, spent a lot, long time on that. It was shale. So we had a roller, an old roller, and we rolled this all down and made this tennis court. I don't know where we got some netting to put across the middle there. That lasted for a while anyways. The tennis court was on the school property, just between the school and the church. In fact, I was I was over there. We went to the, the uh, New to You the other day and parked there, and I was looking at this where this tennis court was, and it's still... Nice and flat there, and uh, it was fun, and it gave us something to do. The The subject I liked best was geography and math. Now, I don't know why that is, but uh, I like the geography of thinking of, you know, where other people live and what other people have done for a living and think of people that lived away up north or lived in Africa or South America. And what they done for a living, or how they lived, and uh, I thought that would be quite interesting. I liked math, or it wasn't math; it was arithmetic. <laughs> we used to do uh, quick work, and I loved that. That was uh, that was fractions, what it was. But but the other subjects wasn't very pleasant at all. I didn't like them. <laughs> My best friend was Lou Auden when, but he came in grade four. We were 11, I think, because both him and I missed grade one. I missed half the year of going to school my first year, so I failed, and he failed his first year. So when he came, we were both in the same grade, and uh, we were still friends. Um, he just died a couple of years ago, 86 or 87, I think, and we were still friends up till then. So we were friends for 75 years. Now, that was my best friend on the island. 
uh, Hope Bay Store was started in, in 1905, R.S.W. Corbett and Sons. And I don't know how long R.S.W. Corbett lived. But anyways, Percy Corbett took over when his, his dad died. And Percy Corbett was, oh, I guess he was still there in the 50s. And he had, a, like a general store, they had everything there. They had wash tubs and all kinds of groceries and uh, hardware. And I know they had 22 shells. They used to do a lot of 22 practicing, shooting, and uh, buckets and dry goods. The post office was in the store. That was, well, that would be open every day. Every day the store was open. The gas station was there. They had one pump, and I, I guess it was regular. And then they had marine gas. His dad, dad had a fish boat. And he used to get his gas there, and this was in the, yeah, around 42. Gas, gas was 10 cents a gallon for a boat, quite a few cents cheaper than gas for the road because they didn't have to pay the tax on it. And the uh, gas used to come in by barge, and it'd be pumped up to the tank. And then he had coil oil and naphthal gas or white gas, or whatever you want to call it, for the gas. The boat used to come in two times a week, so in the summertime, we'd try and get there every every time the boat come in, just to talk to people and see what was going on, all the, the news of the day, and the, making sure you didn't miss anything. And feed day, I think, well, if it was once or twice a month where the grain came in to feed the animals and that, uh, the uh, boat had to stay an extra time so they could get this all this feed unloaded and uh, the warehouse that all this feed was put into is where uh, the cafe at Hope Bay is that before it was burnt down that's where the warehouse was and that had all the uh, all the feed and uh, I think it, he sold a bit of lumber and uh, any any big items that he sold was it was in this feed shed I think we called it the wharf shed it was a pretty big building, but yeah. And I know it had scales in there. That's the only place we could weigh ourselves. I I enjoyed fishing. We've done a lot of fishing and we caught a lot mostly coho at that time. And I guess we had to go well to Tumba, which was probably about fourteen miles. And Dad had a fish boat, it was a cod boat, it had live tanks and but it was slow, it only done six knots. So it took us a while to get out there. And we had to work the proper tides so the fish were only biting on certain tides and so we had to get them as quick as we could. And uh yeah, we got well, got washed up full and in not too long a time, say maybe an hour, but the tide was right. We brought them home and we, we canned them in cork tins. We had a hand canner. We'd just do, do cork tins, but it would seal them. And then uh, we have, say, 50 quarts. And we had a 45-gallon drum that we filled with water and we built a fire outside. Uh, once it got boiling, it had to go for four hours, so somebody had to stoke the fire up because the fish it had had to be on the boil all the time. Otherwise, they, yeah, they wouldn't cook properly. And maybe one or two out of that 50 tins, the, the uh, lid wouldn't pop in, so we had to eat those right away so when they were fresh. Yeah, so we we done that a couple of times. Uh, we got our winter's supply of fish. And as I say, they were they were, were were coho, but there's no no coho here now. Well, they're not one, I guess. But fishing is certainly not like it used to be. And then we used to go in the rowboat out to the canal and through the canal and fish for grilts, which is a a, bay, a young salmon, well up to fourteen, sixteen inches long. We used to get a feed of those all right. And later on in years, we used to 
go out to Razor Point and get a couple of cod, bring them in and fill them and have them for supper. So they were nice and fresh. I like fishing because, uh, I don't know, I just like pulling fish in and uh, because we fished uh, Ling Cod eh, for three, four years. You had to keep them alive. So when you took them to the uh, sale, they had to be live. You had to take them out of the tanks and, and uh, for 10 cents a pound they were. But some of the cod weighed 30, 40 pounds, eh? The biggest one I think we got was 69 pounds. I think it was in the past, if I remember right, in active past. Younger brother caught it, and he was probably eight or nine. He couldn't pull it in, he was too small. <laughs> so dad had to pull it in for him. A real pay dirt, that one. <laughs> but that was the biggest one. Down down where the uh, museum is now, there's that island there that mother would take us over there for three weeks. In the summertime, which would be in a ho- supposed to be in a holiday, but I guess I guess it was. <laughs> it was out on on the island there, on the bluff side, and they'd throw our line over at in the evening, and in the morning we'd pull up a rock cod. So we had cod for breakfast, and uh, we could do that every day while we were there, which we enjoyed. <laughs> Used to like to go fishing; that was fun. My first paying job was in the logging on Galliano Island. I was 16, and I was a, a whistle punk for the guys on the rigging, the chokerman, and, and, and that when they were out in the bush, and I was halfway between them and the donkey. So they'd holler to me, and I had a, a what they call a bug. Uh, I'd give the signals to the donkey. So he could go ahead or come back or tight line or uh, whichever you had to be done with the log to, to get it in into the spar tree. Yeah, that was my first one. And then next job was I worked on South Pender with Alf Pednault. And uh, he he had a fish boat. And we used to go to, uh, which is Post Cove now, which would have been government dock, CPR dock there, where the Princess Mary used to come in. He had a store there. We went from there to, to work in this old, they could call it a pickup, but it, did, it didn't have any box on it. It just had a flat deck. And uh went to work in that. I was still whistle punking then. <laughs> that was a fun job, though. <laughs> you could hear them, them, them choke them, and they'd be swearing and that to try and get this choker under the log, and language wouldn't be that, that great. And then when they got it into the donkey, I had to run down and unhook it, which is called a chaser. And that, that was fun, running back and forth and talking to the donkeyman. And I don't know if you know where the divide is, but it was people by the name of Brooks owned that property. Went to work in a boat, the same boat as we went to the, the dock at South Pendra. We had to uh, haul the logs into the spark tree. The spark tree was pretty well right on the beach. And then we, they had to get these logs in the water, so I had to put a stiff leg out, which is a, say, 200-foot tree or 150-foot tree. Put that out in the water and, and, and uh, tie the end down and have a, a line on there with, with a, uh, it had a, had a pulley on it. And then the, the uh, a cable attached to the donkey, which had to pull a log out and then come back, pull more logs out. So finally, they got them all in the water. They had to have two operations to move these logs rather than just the one normally. Where you just haul them in and put them on the truck, and that was at the divide. And then the other job when we went into uh, into the dock there and went up in the truck, that was on the opposite side, but on the same property, halfway out the island, just at the end of the. Uh, well, it was uh, Tisa's farm at that time, but I think going on the road now, at the far end of that, there's a road going up this way. Well, that was still part of Brooks, and we, we put in two settings there, which is a spar tree, two different spar trees. 
And my brother was a high rigger. He branched all the tree and took the top off, and put up the guy lines, and he fell all the timber and bucked all the timber on Magic Lake itself. And as I was saying, there's two two different parcels of land there. One was Adams and one was Allen's. And Adams was where the Magic Lake is now, and that that's where we fell the timber and bucked the timber. There was out of the two parcels of land, there was three million feet of timber came off of there, mostly first growth trees. Actually, the whole island was logged. You wouldn't know it now, but if you look for the stumps, some of the stumps, I guess, are rotted out. But there was uh, some big trees up to, uh, well, five feet, not one sixty. There was some big cedar, but there was no sale for cedar. We didn't fall the cedar. We fell the the dead trees, all the snags, and that we had to fall those. And uh, yeah, but there was a lot of a lot of big trees, a lot of trees, say four feet, three, four, and five feet. And then on Saturna, and the biggest tree we fell was eight feet through. Uh, that's including the bark. And uh, first log was twenty-four feet long. And the chain, the chainsaw had a six-foot bar, and we couldn't get through it, even twenty-four feet up, with a six-foot bar. We had to notch it in and to get the uh, headstock in, so we could buck it up, buck it down, or for for a log. Maybe every hundred feet there was a a, a tree uh, on the average, but they, they, you know, they weren't they weren't thick like some trees up in the on the coast or on Vancouver Island, they're thick as they touch them, touch every, any tree, two trees at once or that. But not here, they were, they were spaced out more so than that. Say a hundred feet apart, they're sometimes more, sometimes, well, sometimes less. Sometimes it was two or three right together. And, uh, yeah, those were pretty hard to fall. It was hard to get the, the saw in between them, but eventually managed to get them down anyways. Yeah, that was uh, well, more fun than work, I guess. Just to hear these things crashing down. and <laughs> Well, it was hard work, too, because the saw I carried, the bucking saw, was 69 pounds. And carrying that around all day was, uh, you know, and, and the uh, falling saw... It was 125 pounds, but that was two man, two man saw. Eh? He had a headstock and a six foot bar, but it was certainly better than falling by hand and bucking by hand. It was very dangerous. When I worked in Galliano for the year I worked there, there was two people who got killed on the rigging. You had to watch what you were doing, and everybody helped everybody else out, eh? If they thought they were going to be in danger, somebody gave them a holler and uh, saying that, you know, better get out of there. We were on Galliano. We raised a spar tree. You had to have a gin pole to put the cables on to winch the uh, spar tree up. Anyways, they had it halfway up, and, and the uh, the top of the gin pole broke off, and it was, well, I would say a 100-foot tree. And the whole top broke off and came right down over the donkey. And we thought, oh my goodness, the donkey punchers had the biscuit. But nope, come walking out of there just like he was, he owned the joint. Yeah, it was a funny feeling that was, that's for sure. Well, the, the road ended right where the uh, baseball diamond is here. The house was there and the barn was just a little further towards Bedwell that, that way. And uh, in the mill, they had a mill there. Buck Swamp was was just a swamp because we used to go out there and hunt ducks. That that was part of Allen's property, and and there was a cabin down on Boat Nook. But that that's the only two people that lived at that time between Wallace Point and and uh, Row Lake. So there was a lot of area in there where there wasn't any homes at all. I don't know when we were kids, we walked all over the place, but. I think there were game trails because we used to go out there hunting. Yeah, to get out to uh, Magic Lake, called now, it was just a swamp. 
but it was Bedwell Harbor Road, which is opposite the road going down to the marina. I, I guess it was about a two-mile walk. Then the road stopped there, but it wasn't long before that it was put right through to Bedwell Harbor because there was two people bought places down there. One I remember one name was Sproul. They they lived by the uh, by the beach there in Bedwell. <laughs> I think 50 people went to the uh, Second World War from Pender Island and, and, and South Pender. I had uh, three brothers that, that went into into the Army in the Second World War. The oldest one, Ross, he, he joined up when the war first started. And he, he was working in the forestry before he went. So they put him in the forestry and he, he worked in, in uh, northern Scotland for most of the war. And the other two were, they were working at a fish plant. And, well, all the young guys were, but they, anybody who was working there got conscripted. So they had to go into the war. That was in 41 or 42. And then, of course, they uh, started in Canada, and then they went to England for more training. And then they went to uh, France. My brother Lloyd, he got wounded. He was only in France 10 days when he got wounded. His officer stepped on a mine. He was behind, and he lost an eye on it and uh, got full of shrapnel. He lived till he was 74, 75, and, and the shrapnel was still coming out of him. So he had that metal in him all his life. <laughs> yeah. But he sired 13 kids, so I guess it didn't hurt him. <laughs> The fish plant used to hire like those people those age, but we were younger, and you know I was only fourteen, I guess, and the older brother was sixteen. We had we went to work over there just because they couldn't find anybody else because everybody was in the uh, army, and uh, we walked over there from from Short Road through Roe Lake and then into the fish plant. At Shingle Bay, it was there, just out on the bank there. Worked twelve hours, walked home, and then went back. Worked another twelve hours, and <laughs> when we first started there, we unloaded fish, and like the packers would bring the fish in, and then they had a marine leg. It went down into the hole, and you like buckets, eh, on this marine leg, because it kept going. You, know, you get these, just shovel it into the buckets, and and uh, we worked one time 36 hours straight by shoveling these, this fish because the boat would come in. They, they you know, the big catch of fish. The boat would come in. Well, they had to be unloaded. And we were, there were four of us who were the only crews they had. So we had to stay there and un unload all these fish. We worked 36 hours and then. They found a place for us to sleep there, and we slept for, I don't know, night or whatever. Then we had to load meal for eight hours. And his meals were in 100-pound bags, eh? And we had to get them on the dolly, throw them up on the dolly, and then throw them down on the boat. The boat crew looked after us from there. They, they had a cooker, and they cooked them and then pressed the oil out of them. And then they used the oil, and then they used fish for meal, like, for gardens, for fertilizer for gardens. And the oil, I don't know what they've done with that. They shipped that out. Well, they shipped all of it out, but I don't know where the oil went. And then the saltery, we worked at the saltery. It was at Otter Bay, where, where the, uh, the marina is now. It took up quite a bit of room because they had some bunkhouses and uh, another two or three houses where the managers stayed. And uh, the wharves would probably hold say, maybe 10 packers. The uh, fish had come in uh, on a, uh, in these packers and they had to be unloaded in, into the uh, tanks. They had, I guess, a dozen tanks, which would have been maybe 20 by 20. And uh, they had to be put in there and then the, the brine was put on them and they had to stay there for, I think it was two weeks. And we had to shovel them out of there 
onto the platform. Then they uh, they were put in boxes. I think the boxes were three feet long and two feet wide and maybe two feet thick. And then they put more salt on them. All these uh, boxes went to China, and they say that they wanted the salt more than they wanted the fish. So they put lots of salt in it, anyways. Yeah, and then um, one year it was a cannery. They canned the herring, and uh, that was just for one year, I think. So for the cans came out of the cooker. They had to be put in boxes, so that was one of our jobs, to put the uh, the cans in the boxes. The packer came in and, and loaded up. The uh, packers' names were East Home, West Home, South Home, and North Home. And I, I think, if I remember, they were pretty close to 100 feet long. Well, it was like a little freighter, I suppose. Hell held a lot of cartons of fish. Yeah, that was about sultry. But it, well, they actually burnt down. But it wasn't working anyways. As soon as uh, freezing came in, well, they froze the fish instead of uh, canning them and that. But most of the fish were taken to the, the fish plant, which was what wasn't too far from the saltery, and they were made into fish meal. And the same process, they had to be unloaded. There they had a marine leg, which went down into the hole of the boat, and you shallow the fish into the buckets. And they came up and threw into a hopper, and the hopper held a, a ton of fish, so... Every time you got a ton of fish, it had to be dumped and it went into a conveyor and went into the, uh, well, I guess they were, they were like a big box in the building. I think it was six or seven of these. And they, they probably held a hundred ton of fish each one. And then when they wanted to use them, they had this, this hopper going in between the two tanks on each side and this hopper in the middle. Well, if the fish were fresh, one person could shovel these fish into the hopper as fast as they wanted, wanted them, and and uh, yet, if they were a bit old, they did get hard, and you had to really work to get them going. So there had to be two people in there for compensation's sake, anyways. Whether it was easy going or tough going, so that was that, and they went into a cooker. And the meal came out one place, and the oil came out the other. And uh, the uh, oil went to a tank. They had, I don't know how big a tank it was. It was a pretty big tank, anyways. And the meal came out into a box or tank or whatever it was. And then it was taken out of there into sacks, 100-pound bags, and then stored. And when the packer came in, they had to be all put in the packer. And that, that was hard work because those things weighed 100 pounds. And they had to be put on this trolley and up, uh, maybe say, stack five, six, seven, eight high. And then the same, putting them in, into the uh, pack where they had a, a chute. We had to lift them off the trolley and put them on a chute. And somebody had to be down there to pack them in, into the uh, packer. So that was... Uh, what happened at the fish plant. Well, during the Depression, I guess, in the, in the 30s, we mostly lived on, for meat, on venison, because there was lots of venison, and they uh, used to come into the garden, erect the garden, so Dad would have the shotgun and out through the window with the pit lamp, and bang, and there was a deer, so we had that happened maybe once a week or in the when the vegetables were or the garden was going, but when the garden wasn't going, we had to go hunting for them, which wasn't a big chore except if they were quite a ways away. You had to carry them home. And a buck would probably weigh 125 pounds and a doe probably 75. Still, they were pretty heavy. But anyways, they were meat, so... We didn't starve to death. There wasn't any freezers here at that time, so uh, we had a, a cooler outside on the porch where the wind would come through. Well, we couldn't eat them all at once, so we canned what we couldn't 
used so it didn't go to waste. And uh, something I didn't like very well was canned venoms. It just didn't turn a person on. But we ate it anyways. <laughs> My uh, grandma had cabins that she rented. They were little houses. They were more than a cabin. And uh, my wife's aunt and her husband rented one for, oh, I don't know how many years, but she had nieces, which used to come over in the summer. And we used to go down there swimming, so we weren't really allowed to swim on the beach that they swam on, but we used to sneak over there anyway. So I got to know one of them, Noreen. Well, that was the first summer. The second summer when they came, we got to know each other better. I guess by the third summer, we uh, sort of got going steady. And uh, I was working in the bush at that time, and we were thinking of getting married, and she didn't want to marry somebody that would go into the logging camps. So I quit that, and I went to town and uh, went back to school for auto metal technician. And uh, when we got married, I couldn't get an apprenticeship because I was 25. So I got an improver, getting a dollar an hour, and she was making ninety dollars a month. So we had we had a bit of a struggle, and, and we we paid uh, forty five dollars a month for we had a basement suite. It didn't have any toilet in it, so we had to go up to stairs to the people that owned the place to go to the toilet. Same as the sink, we had to use laundry tubs for you know doing the dishes or washing or. That the fridge we didn't have a fridge we had a a cooler which we had to put ice in twice a week. We were living in 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 Vancouver then, or we lived in um, Caresdale, and we lived in a basement suite. Yeah, and then we bought a house in North Vancouver, up by the uh, Cleveland Dam, and we were there for six seven years I guess, and then we went. South Surrey White Rock, and we got five acres there. We built a house and uh, had a family. We had three children, girl and two boys. What we had a we place here. Uh, Dad gave us an acre and a half. Well, on Short Road, but it wasn't Short Road then. That was in '59, I think. We came there for quite a number of years, and then my aunt had this place, wanted to sell this place, so. That was in '72. We paid eight thousand dollars for this lot at that time. This is where. Uh, well, I wanted to come here too, but Noreen wanted to come here more so. So that's just what we done. We rented our house in town for I don't know four years, I guess. And then we finally decided we sold that to our daughter, and she's still there. I've enjoyed my retirement, that's for sure, yeah. Well, when we first came here, we we, uh, we went camping months in the, in the uh, spring and a month in the fall. In the spring, we went to Vancouver Island. In the fall, we went up in the interior. So that took two months of the year, but we enjoyed it. We, we, we started out with a tent trailer and then finally got a fifth wheel. We had the get somewhere where there was fish we had to then uh, I spent all day fishing every day pretty well I guess even if I didn't catch anything I just enjoyed being out there in the boat well since we, we've come here there's been uh, well there was a little bit of the driftwood but not much there was a couple of buildings the garage in the, the front along Razor Point Road that's the only part that was here and then they they built built the rest since we've been here, and there, there wasn't any winery. They, uh, I don't know, that's been going for fifteen, twenty years, I guess. And the uh, apple cider that started two years ago. I volunteered at the golf course in the, on the grounds, eh, for twelve years. We put in all the um, rock walls, all the cart paths, and we built. Number nine green, number six green, and we made. Uh, I don't know if you seen any. We called them dolphins with the, the three poles with the address on it and wrapped around with rope. 
we made a hundred of those, and that paid for the cart pass. Well, the golf course used to be George Grimmer's. Two storekeepers bought that property where the golf course is from George Grimmer, and they donated it. They donated it to the island. Hope Bay was Percy Corbett, and uh, Port Wash was uh, Jack Bridge. So they got together and bought that property, and so the story goes. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> Most of the island occupation was farming, because there wasn't any other work other than the fish plant and the saltery, the farming, and, and of course, vegetable products and, and that. People sold to the store, but uh, anybody that had any land could grow their own vegetables, so there wasn't too much sale for uh, vegetables, although there was, there was some, especially in the summer when people used to come here in the summer. Lots of people had friends to come. They came and visited and because there wasn't any uh, any campground here at that time. Or Well, there was a couple of beauty rests. was one, which is on McKinnon Road. And then in Browning uh, Harbor, there was the uh, Maples, which uh, had gas. Oh, yeah, at the Driftwood, there was, there was nothing there. There was, I guess, where the, the last building he put up, there was a house there. Now, that's the only guy by the name of Swabby. Yeah, it was just, well, it was more of a shack than a house, a one-room uh, one building. But that's the only building that was there. There wasn't nothing else. The uh, The original school was where the government workyard is now. It was just a one-room school. And that that was I guess built in the eighteen hundreds because my dad started to go there for the first year or two he was here, and then they built this other school where the where the new DU is. Went to Victoria and I bought this uh, thirty two Oldsmobile. It was a uh, it was a plush really plush car, and it had uh, straight eight cylinders in it. And uh, but it had a weak transmission. He couldn't uh, couldn't keep low gear in it. And so uh, I don't know. I got three or four different transmissions put into it, and and it was all the same, always the same. So I just didn't bother. I just took off in second gear. It had enough power that you didn't have to slip the clutch too bad to uh, <laughs> to get it going. But it was a nice car. Well, the year I got that car in the summer, we had fire season. And uh, the uh, loggers were on strike. So it was four months that I drove 10,000 miles on the island here. That was before Magic Lake came in, before South Fender was in. So we probably only had 20, 30 miles of road. I went over those quite a lot of times. <laughs> Just because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was really excited. Well, I, I forget what it was now. It was probably only a couple of hundred bucks. But then a couple of hundred bucks was a couple of months, three months' work. <laughs> it was a dark color. And I can't remember if it was a green or a black. You know, there's, there's still part of it, at least there was, up in the old property. But that was 20 years ago or more, so I don't know, it was probably all rusted out now anyways. Well, uh, I like Pender Island. It, it Well, I did in the early days anyways, because it was... Well, I don't know, younger, I guess, and I like working outdoors. Now it's, to me, there's getting too many people here, getting the, well, especially in the ferry situation. You don't get down there an hour early, you don't get on. So it's not as, I don't know, I don't like it as well as I did when I was younger.
when I was here. But anyways, that's the way changes are, and that's the way it is. My wife, for 64 years, is Marine, and we had uh, three children, Janet and Ross and Luke. And Janet now is 58, Ross is 54, and, and Luke is 50. And we've got seven grandchildren. The oldest one is 27, who's Cassie, and Emma is 25, I guess, and Isabel's 23, Jake's 22, uh, Gordon's 19, and Lucas's 8 or 9, and Juliana is 6, so that's our, se that's our seven grandchildren. I was going to say that my great-grandpa Brackett is buried in the graveyard here, and my grandpa Brackett and my grandpa Barman, and my grandma Brackett is buried here too. My youngest brother is buried here. Nor and I are going to be buried there too. title music for this project is Blue Sunset by Frank Enya. All other music written and performed by Ben McConkie. Thank you very much again to Ptarmigan Arts for helping to support this, and thank you for listening.